Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Russell here. Hello, it's Ben. Today on the show, we have John Fate. John has been slacklining for seven and a half years. He helped establish several new high lines in the Southern California area over the last four years. John was selected to walk a high line on the Mandalay Bay Hotel during Andy Lewis's Urban High Line World Record event last year. He has been traveling and working with Gibbon Slackline, helping to run their competition circuits, and he is always living for the next adventure. John, you're living the slack life. What does that mean? Oh, yeah. Well, basically, it's just getting out there every day, doing what you love, looking for different ways to go slacklining, whether it's over a lake in your local community, at the local park, uh, between two mountain cliffs. You know, I'm just getting out there trying to live the dream and live the life. What is slacklining? Slacklining is the act of balancing on a piece of webbing. It could be one inches wide. It could be two inches wide. It could be a foot off the ground or it could be several thousand feet off the ground. Uh, And it's basically the act of just balancing on it, walking on it. It could be doing yoga on it. It could be treating it like a trampoline. There's like it branches off just like climbing almost how you have trad and sport and bouldering. There's several different faucets to slacklining that you can enjoy. So you said you've been doing this seven and a half years. How did you get started slacklining? I had been climbing for several years and I went out on spring break to Joshua Tree and ran into some local guides who were slacklining in one of the washes behind the campsite. I was immediately hooked. I learned everything that they had to teach me about setting one up and the materials required. And I instantly went home and just started training. At the time, I was already training for finding different ways to train for climbing, to get rid of the Elvis legs and to be able to grab onto pinches a lot longer and things like that. So, you know, it just went hand in hand with what I was doing at the time and something that, you know, even when I was injured and couldn't climb, I could still do and enjoy. Now, you just said Elvis legs, and I have no clue what that means. (laughs) <laughs> you kind of get the like throbbing shaky sensation when you're standing on slab <laughs> okay, yeah yeah it's the same thing uh, you know you got to really train your whole body and that's what i was looking at when i was young and 20 and looking at uh you know trying to take climbing a little more seriously from what we've seen in some of your media and videos people say you have a very unique slackline style what does that mean exactly it's like a, an art form, an expression of your body when you're out on the line. Because if you look at a line with nobody on it, even in the windiest day, if it's the right tension and the right conditions, the line doesn't move. It, it actually reacts to your body. And so you will see everyone who gets on a slack line or a high line or a trick line, they all have their own unique style, their own unique way that they like to hold their balance, catch their balance, the different types of tricks they like to do, you know, whether it be somebody trick lining and doing some of the most crazy trampoline flip tricks you've ever seen on a two inch piece of webbing, or just holding some really hard yoga poses for a really long time on a high line. Let's rewind back to how long a slack line is, what is it tied to, how do you get mm-hmm. the tension where you want it? Definitely. A slack line can be as long as you want it to be. It could be 10 feet long 
and like I said, a foot off the ground, or it could be 180 feet long, thousands of feet off the ground. Typically, when you're learning for slacklining, you connect it to trees. Like you go to the local park over grass, you set up a 10 or 12 foot line that's about a foot to two feet high, and you connect it to those two trees. Typically, you want to make sure that the trees are big enough to hold tension because you will be tightening it. And depending on the systems of tightening, Gibbon has ratchets. Some other companies uh, prefer to teach you how to do the old primitive friction style with carabiners and knots and things like that. Some other people use pulleys and ropes to bring their lines to tension. Uh, and webbing has become so interesting because people have formulated these very high-profile webbings that don't stretch a lot like tubular stretches. So you don't even need to tension it at that point if it doesn't stretch very much. You just need to bring it to hand tension, like how hard you can pull it by hand connected to your tree, and you can walk it that way as well. So you're able to tighten this rope enough where a normal-sized human being is standing on it two feet above the ground, mm-hmm. and it's not flexible enough to reach the ground? Yes, that is very correct. It's it's very, very static webbing. Something people might be more used to just at circuses, and I don't want to compare this to circuses, but the act of tight roping. What's the difference between slack lining and tight roping? Well, they do come from the same family of sports activity. Uh, If you were to throw it into a fishbowl of balancing sports, it's called funambling. What is it called? Funambling. Funambuling. It's it's really hard. It's a French word. I'm butchering it horribly. (laughs) Russell's Um, French is actually really good. No, that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) It's all basically the same. The physics are slightly different. A tightrope is typically a piece of cable or uh, static rope, like synthetic static rope that reacts like a cable that you bring to high tension. Uh, And then you have guy wires or pendulum weights to help stabilize the line, as well as... 20 or 30 foot pole um, to extend your balance and lower your center of balance because slacklining you actually don't have that pole so you're just using your arms your, your whole body actually to keep that center of balance and movement and your center of balance is at your hips when you're doing that now a tightrope walker actually has the bar at their center of hips and because it's 20 or 30 feet long it actually lowers your center of balance well below the line it's almost like cheating in, in a sense but it's amazing what they do at the same time have you ever done tightrope walking? A little bit, yeah. Just just to you know tickle the curiosity, so I knew what it was all about. Nice, yeah. So here at Mountain Meister, we love extreme people. It's really great. You're the first slackliner to come on. Uh, another thing that you do is also highlining. Could you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about what highlining is and maybe how it's a little bit more extreme? Of course. Basically, slacklining is something that everyone can do low to the ground. I was inspired by Dean Potter back in the day when I was like getting into climbing and taking it seriously. I remember seeing the National Geographic of him doing the baseline. It was like, I want to be there. I don't care if it's not baselining. I just want to float on a piece of webbing, you know, in the middle of the, the air. Um, and I started training for that. And basically what highlining is, is instead of doing it low to the ground at the park, you take it up to the mountains where there are no longer trees to connect to. There may be sometimes, but I mean, they're on a cliff edge. You never know what they're really sunk into. Um, so typically we'll find very large rocks to sling or we'll even place uh, bolts for anchors and we'll tie between two pinnacle points or two cliff sides and uh, walk in the air between them. <laughs> now, trees seem normally pretty stable. Do you take a while to, to consider what kind of rocks you're tying these around and make sure you really have a stable hold? 
Of course, yes. Um, I, I'm always, because I've done uh, load testing on my Highline equipment, load to the ground to see the forces that I generate while I'm on my equipment hundreds of feet off the ground. Mm-hmm. And I do know that there's some tremendous forces at play. You know, even before somebody steps on the line, there could be about 2,100 pounds of tension just on your webbing itself before you even step on it. Wow. Yeah. Walking out to the middle, you begin to actually multiply those forces with your weight as you move and swing on it and get lower and lower into the apex of the center. And then if you were to take a whipper, it's essentially taking those 2,000 pounds and then throwing a 12-foot whipper into the center of it, which would multiply almost your 2,100 pounds double to about 38, somewhere in there. Um so, yeah, we are we are pulling, like, tremendous forces, and you do have to equate um, what you're pulling on, the rocks that you may sling or throw bolts into or even the tree on the cliffside that you're going to use. Yeah, some technical stuff. I was went to school as an engineer, and I'm still trying to mm-hmm. wrap around, whether it's torque or, or what's so Russell, going on. So, Russell, if the rope now, is so. 50 feet long, <laughs> if you leave yeah, one um, end of the slack line going at 5 miles an hour, and then another person <laughs> leaves at the other end of the slack line going 10 miles an hour— what point do they meet? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you were saying that you're jumping on and you're swaying. Is that because of the wind or are you actually doing that intentionally 100 feet off the ground? Uh, sometimes it's intentionally and sometimes you do. I've actually been in like 30 or 40 mile gusting winds wow. where your whole body catches, you feel like you're a kite. Um, like literally the wind pushes you a foot to the side and you see the line under your feet bow off to the side as well. Uh, which kind of creates this like swinging back and forth, almost a slight pendulum. Now, does that make things more fun when it's windy? Yeah, it does. It does really makes it more exciting. Um, for people who are interested in getting into highlining and stuff, it's not the best of conditions because it's one more thing you have to think about, one more thing you have to fight, uh, one more thing that you have to actually block your mind out of thinking about as well. So it's not the best conditions, but it does make it really exciting because when you do get to a level of highlining, let's say that you go to Yosemite and you do the Lost Arrow Spire, which was the first highline in existence there was actually a battle between some french uh cable walking type rope artists and some climbers in the valley to see who could walk that gap at the lost aerospire first is this the same guy uh, as uh man on wire uh no it was not the same guy as man on wire okay uh, <laughs> i have seen that documentary though have you seen that i have that's actually one of the one of the most asked questions it's like are you in a circus uh <laughs> have you seen man on fire uh can you do a backflip uh can you, you know, do a backflip i've landed three backflips i've right. been training actually i've just picked up a coach to help me train so i can get it a little more um dialed because i'm i've just been flailing through the air right now but <laughs> now i assume when you're 450 feet off of the ground you're tied to this rope somehow just in case you fall off Yes, and it's not just a single piece of webbing. It's actually a redundant system. So typically it's going to be two pieces of webbing or a webbing and a piece of rope. Some people even go as far as to add a third where they'll have two pieces of webbing and a piece of climbing rope um, just for backup because this is your lifeline. Uh, if you were to fall off in the center, there is no ground or anyone to lower you back down to the ground. You are 100% committed to your equipment and to the line. Uh, in fact, you actually have to pull yourself back up your own leash to get back on the line mm-hmm. and then remount. So you're up there 100 feet. Do you, do you feel safe in this equipment or are you still a little bit nervous with the heights? 
Um, the heights at first definitely get you, you know, and not understanding all the physics behind the equipment and how you're using it. Uh, when I was first getting into highlining, I was definitely a little afraid of using the equipment. I didn't fully understand the mathematics behind it and the physics and everything else. But, you know, the more you get out there, the more you do it, you know, the more routine you have with setting up the equipment, because that's really the biggest part. I mean, I'll spend four hours in a day setting up these lines just so I can get on it for an hour or two, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I mean, it's like you got to hike with much more equipment and steel than you ever would climbing-wise. So, I mean, for some lines, I'm walking up with, you know, 300 feet of one-inch webbing, another 60-meter rope, um, you know, half a trad rack of all the large sizes just for natural protection or backup, you know, a lot of steel equipment and and then some. You have uh, pulleys, which also require another set of rope. <laughs> So we're doing heavy hauling, but in the end, it's it's very, very, very worth it. And uh, if it's done correctly, you sh- should feel safer than you are at sport climbing. Uh, I mean, because there's been situations where I'm taking 20-foot whippers on sport climbs and just like cheese grating down the whole way uh, or kicking into the slab and threatening to break my legs. Whereas out in the middle of the line, when you fall, it's clean, open air. Now, what is a whipper? Uh, a whip, a whipper is uh, the act of falling, whether it's off a rock okay. or off the line. The term whipper actually had come uh, from when you drop a rope off a cliff and you hear the like whip crack of the tail, mm-hmm. uh, and it would it would actually blow out the the tail of the rope um, because of how it was whipping, and that was uh, coined gotcha. a whipper back way back in the day. History of climbing, right there. <laughs> and then, what is cheese grating down? Cheese grating down. Let's say you're on a slab. You know, you're kind of balancing on your tippy toes and you barely have any hands or feet to hold on to and everything just slips. And just imagine your shoes and your hands kind of passing by a cheese grater. Okay, that <laughs> doesn't sound pleasurable. It's part of the game, especially when you get into harder climbing <laughs> that's on slab and not like Clark uh, overhanging roofs of limestone. So it sounds like you do a pretty good combination of climbing and eyelining when you're up there. Are most of your friends that you're going with, are they also climbers and highliners, or are they one or the other? They're kind of 50-50. Some of them are both. Uh, Some of them climb just as much as they highline, and I love going out with that group. It's a local Southern California group of adventurists uh, called Team Trail Magic, and they're based out of San Clemente, and I travel with them quite a bit. They're actually in Yosemite right now. Uh, having way too much fun and uh so those those guys are um those guys are amazing and then a lot of the other people i go out with are solely slackliners and they may not have the equipment or knowledge on how to rig a highline but they're interested in getting into it and so i provide a very safe experience with a line that is accomplishable for them so you know they say they can only really walk 80 feet at the park i'll set something 60 to 80 feet long for a highline for them um, so that way they can practice on a high line and feel safe doing it, knowing that there's a professional there to rig the equipment and everything like that. Um, and then some of the other groups I go with are solely climbers, and it's climbing adventures, and I'm out there to climb, but I'm always looking for a new high line. <laughs> so do you guys ever get competitive with your climbing or with your highlining? Yes, always. You know, it's kind of like the golden age of highlining right now. Uh, A lot of these climbing areas are just now saying, hey, we recognize that highlining is a sport. Uh, We recognize that you guys will be throwing bolts in the tops of some of the rocks that you guys go to. It's better than 12 or 13 up a face where everyone can see it. Just try and be respectful 
and uh, you know go have fun. And so now, at least in my area, there's a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of establishment going on, and now there's people fighting for different projects because we all see the same you know rock formations and the same gaps everywhere we go. And it's whoever gets motivated with enough gear and the right equipment to go set it up. Yeah, so you talked about the growth in slacklining, and we've seen that slacklining has gotten definitely a lot more recognition after this guy Andy Lewis performed during Madonna's halftime show at the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. And what kind of growth have you seen? Was that really a spark? Uh, yes, yes, it was. It was a huge spark for more growth in the sport of slacklining. When I'd gotten into slacklining seven and a half, almost eight years ago, there was almost nobody who did it. It was this very kind of like taboo climber training thing that not too many people did. And anyone who did try it, it's like riding a bike. At first, it's the most challenging thing you can possibly do. And you just got to stick with it or you don't, you know, you're like, well, I tried it. I can't stand up. You know, it's it's one of those things where if you mentally commit to it and stay with it, and it's one of the most amazing things you can do. Uh, the progression of the sport had slowly grown since I had gotten into slacklining. Competitions came around. They were still on loose one inch and they were only international um, and Andy was a part of some of those first competitions as well. And he just brought it back to America and started pushing for American competitions and things like that. Slowly but surely, he was picked up for the uh, Madonna halftime show. And I mean, that's some of the biggest publicity that the company Gibbon could have gotten, as well as uh, Andy Lewis. And neither of them had to pay for a single thing during the <laughs> Super Bowl halftime show. That's awesome. It's really good to see the growth of the sport. And I saw a piece on 60 Minutes, too. And I guess people like Andy are doing free solo highlining. So mm -hmm. there's no safety equipment there. Could you maybe explain yes. how many people do that and why they do it? So I don't personally know how many people do it, but I do know that there are people out there doing it. And there are the reasons why they're doing it, as a climber myself, I had actually soloed on rock before yeah. I even tried highlining. And it's kind of one of those things that you do for yourself. You like to know where your limits are and where you feel comfortable and where you feel safe. Um, now on rock, you always have t technically three points of contact and you know, you can always down climb if you know that you can down climb the moves you just came up. Right. Highlining solo is a lot different because you are a hundred percent committed. The second you put your foot on the line and take all of your weight off the ground, uh, you are a hundred percent committed. You have to be in that battle the entire length of that line. There is no rest ledge where you can take both hands off. You know, there is no spot to just sit down and hang out. Um, and it's, it's really is, uh, for me at least, it was a very spiritual moving experience. I've only soloed on a line two or three times. I mean, it was far more scary. It took me a year and a half just to muster up the nerve <laughs> to get there. Um, you know, and being able to easily solo on rock, but moving into soloing on Highline, it was a completely different thing for me. And it's, I, I don't know, it's very strange because, you know, some people are using the act of soloing to gain fame uh, in the sport of slacklining and highlining. And you'll see those people out there. They have their videos and they're, you know, putting it on blast about how rad they are and all that stuff. And then you see a lot of the other people who just solo and there are no pictures. It's just a story to be told. And that's kind of, in my personal opinion, how it should be. It's something that you do for yourself and not for the pictures or the fame or anything else. Because at least in my experience, that's how I've watched a lot of the uh, Masters of Stone for my day go. You know, Reardon, Backer, uh, Osmond, even though he wasn't really soloing, he was pushing his limits. <laughs> Now, is that good for the sport to grow popularity through not using a harness or safety gear? 
I think it's okay as sports action wise. I'm nobody wants to see anybody die on film. Uh, I'm going to say that right now, you know, and that's why I say it shouldn't be something you do for anybody else but yeah. yourself. Um, it should be something that should be seen so that way people know what the limits are and they know that, uh, you know, it's possible. It's possible to get out there. I mean, the world record for a highline, I think, is huge. It's uh, Andy Lewis again on Bongzilla. I think it's like a 180 foot high line that's like two or 300 feet off the ground. It's a huge line. And, uh, you know, I'm, for me, I've only done like 70 feet without a leash. And to think Still. about 100, yeah, to think about 180 feet is, was just mind blowing to me. I don't um, know. That, that two feet high sounded a little <laughs> scary to me. <laughs> and, and really, I think it's okay for people to see, but they need to know that these are professionals doing this and that, you know, those professionals are doing it for the sake of fame and everything like that. And that it is a potential, but also it needs to be displayed that there's a safer side to the sport. And it's not just a bunch of adrenaline junkies. Um, you know, a lot of the people that I hang out with and talk to aren't the adrenaline junkies. They're not looking to jump off the cliff or do some giant rope swing. They're out there to have those really nice, peaceful moments with a clear mind, you know, just kind of floating midair. Um, and that's really like when you feel comfortable on a line with a leash on, it, it, it really is. It's the closest thing to flying without flying. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Have you ever had any close calls while you were either free soloing or whether you had the, the line on you and you came close to hitting a rock or something? I have witnessed a few close calls. I've had a few people fall towards the end of a line near a cliff edge. And it's one of the, the only dangerous parts of the, the high line when you're actually out walking on it is near the cliff edge hmm. where you can fall essentially 12 feet and deck into a piece of rock. Uh, I've seen somebody, they at least had a helmet on because they were new to highlining and everything, but they fell right there at that cliff edge and scraped their face right across the rock and they had some, some gobies or some scratches right across their face. Can you make a living slacklining? The sport's growing, obviously, a lot. Uh, I see that mm -hmm. there's a U.S. men's professional slackline team as well as U.S. women's professional slackline team. What do you need mm -hmm. to do to become a pro slackliner, and is that sustainable? Well, there are a lot of people who are doing professional slacklining and making a living. You know, most of them have written books, uh, made films, instructional films, things like that, uh, things to help grow the community and the sport and safety. You know, even though they're like uh, Andy Lewis's wife, Haley Ashburn, uh, made like the introduction to slacklining and introduction to highlining films and books. And, you know, even though Andy's out there promoting like, hey, this is cool, this is rad, this is what I do, it's sketchy, his wife is out there promoting the safety aspect of the sport as well, you know, so there's other other people who, uh, you know, a good friend of mine, Frankie Nahara, who I had met and helped teach how to slackline in San Diego when I was first getting into it, is now the marketing manager. He's like the online marketing manager for Gibbon Slackline. So anything that you see from the Gibbon Facebook page, Gibbon website, he manages that as well as he manages the competition circuits. He's the audio engineer for those, those competition circuits. So, you know, and he still competes as well as does all this other stuff for the company so it's pretty amazing uh, if you're you know multi-talented and have kind of this jack-of-all-trades qualities uh, besides just slacklining or highlining um, there's definitely a place for you in the industry to help make you some money as far as it being sustainable i wouldn't say fully quit your day job always have some side side income coming in but it's definitely something fun and uh, over the last four years i have been able to travel a good portion of the country uh, for competitions and for different highline events and things like that so you were saying you traveled and you have some affiliation with Gibbon. What do you actually do with them, uh, either at competitions or on a day-to-day -day basis? 
like I said, uh, having that jack of all trades uh, characteristics really helps. So for years, I was like a professional mover. So I'm really good at loading heavy equipment into trucks and unloading heavy equipment from trucks. So uh, I'll go and help set up the competition sites and help load the trucks. We do have international guests from around the world come to these competitions. So I'm also a chaperone there. This year, I've been requested to be a slackline judge. The trick lining competitions are getting more fierce as uh, more and more kids are getting into it. They're fearless and they their bones are rubber, whereas I break. So, <laughs> you know, trick lining is a, is is a very very intense sport. Um, it's literally it's a two inch trampoline that you're you're manipulating your body on like a skateboard, and so. As uh, more and more of these kids are getting into the sport, um, I'm no longer going to be competing like I was over the last couple of years, uh, and I'm more going to be a, a, a guest judge for some of these competitions. Um, and then on top of that, they do run highlining demos at some of these competitions as well, so that way people see all aspects of the sport, whether it's you know a slack line low to the ground, a uh, trick line competition, or even a highline, um, even though it may be like 20 or 30 feet off of uh, the ground or water or over water or something, it's still, you know, a demonstration of a high line. And so I'm one of the, the uh, head riggers and performers for that as well. And then uh, the, a lot of these competitions are nationwide. And so instead of flying people around, um, I'm one of the drivers as well for Gibbons. So I'll like drive the products uh, to the site and help unload it and run the store and everything. So, you know, you just got to be willing to do a little bit of everything and there's a place for you. So that sounds like a pretty busy job traveling so much. Do you still get to spend a lot of time highlining and climbing? When I'm at home, uh, I do. I try and find as much time uh, to climb and highline. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's like three or four months out of the year during the summer and two or three months during the winter. Pretty much uh, the most I'll be asked uh, from given to travel. And then a lot of the other traveling that I do uh, is personal travel or I've been requested to come out to an area and help establish a line with somebody who may be having difficulty doing it on their own, stuff like that. So, John, what's the best way that if one of our listeners is interested in starting slacklining, what do you do first? My recommendation first is to start with a set of goals. And my first set of goal was to just be able to stand up on one foot for at least 15 seconds and then teach my other foot to do the same thing. And that was half of walking for slacklining. So if you can actually stand up on like a 12-foot line that may be a foot off the ground, and if you can stand up on one foot for 15 seconds, there's, you know, there's a third of walking. And then if you can stand up on your other foot for 15 seconds, there's the second third. And then if you can stand on both feet on the line for 15 seconds, there's that last third of walking. And then it's just piecing it together of, um, you know, transferring your weight between feet and moving forward. You were talking about some of the gear to get one set up. How much do slack lines, like a basic slack line, even cost for someone to buy their own? The simplest slack line kit that Gibbon sells that somebody could easily go to Sport Chalet or REI and buy one is, I believe, like $85 is the cheapest kit. And that's that's a pre-packaged kit, has all the instructions. You don't need to know how to tie knots or make pulley systems or anything else like that. My one experience I had with the slack line was actually at a ski area and I was wearing my Telemark boots and I tried to get across and it was almost impossible. Do you ever try wearing different shoes while you're on it? Uh, 
I do, yes. At first, I learned uh, without shoes, but then I like almost broke my pinky toe and stubbed my big toe a couple times, and that's when I started using um, shoes and training myself in shoes. And so, like, I've used hiking boots with like the biggest heels and the roughest edges ever that get stuck on everything um, that aren't comfortable to you know approach shoes. So that way, I can just show up and approach and do some easy, moderate climbing in, and then slackline in them as well. Um, and I, I love that kind of aspect where it's like a very versatile shoe that I can do a couple different things in. But typically, a lot of the people I see who are asking about, should I be with shoes? Should I be without shoes? Um, you're looking for a decent, flat-soled, tightly-fitting shoe, uh, like a skate shoe almost, something that you can have a platform for your balance on. Yeah, Russell told me that story about on the Telemark boots and asked me if I've ever slacklined. And I definitely have never <laughs> slacklined. And I thought about it some more, and I don't think I've ever even stood on something that's less than three inches wide. <laughs> I think my parents had me do gymnastics when I was a kid. And I remember going to Joshua Tree as a kid and you know, walking on the cable barricades between the plant life areas and the trail and things like that. So, I mean, it's, it's really funny how, like, even in the sport of climbing, everyone always says, you know, we were born to, to climb. And even with slacklining, I kind of look at it the same way. You know, we're all born to slack almost because uh, – even as a kid, I remember, you know, trying to find uh, a fence to balance on and walk across or find that, that loose chain in the parking lot that I could walk across. And I'm sure we've, we've all experienced some form of slacklining, but it's not quite the same materials or products, you know. As slackline starts to increase and it seems like more and more people are using it every day and getting more competitive, what's one kind of challenge that you see in the actual sport to get it to that next level, maybe to make it an Olympic sport or uh, whatever level you think it could get to. I do see, you know, in the future, it, it being potentially like trick lining being potentially a, uh, a Olympic sport as well as tandem lining. Josh Bodwin has got a video out right now with his girlfriend where they're actually both walking on the line at the same time and kind of doing a choreographed dance and stuff. I could see that in the Olympics as well. For it to get to those those levels of recognition and more people getting into it, you know, it's it's kind of in its grassroots competition stage, a lot like uh, the early days of skating and climbing in Southern California, or sorry, skating and surfing in Southern California. Um, you know, there, there had to be that grassroots competition to show that, you know, hey, people can get into this and people can really enjoy themselves and have a lot of fun. And then from there, it's just getting it to the people and letting them have fun and letting them, you know, giving them inspiration to get out there every day. And I mean, I've seen several of my friends who, you know, were battling with being overweight and I told them, just get out on a slack line for half an hour to an hour every day. And I guarantee you will lose weight in six months. And I've seen a couple friends lose like 70 pounds just slacklining for a year straight. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really just one of those things that, you know, excellence is that what you do every day. And the more you get out there, the better you're going to get at it. That's the biggest thing is like trying to encourage people to not be discouraged to try slacklining because it is hard at first. But once you figure it out, it's, it's all downhill. It's very, very easy from there. I think it's going to be Ben and my uh, new lunch break activity. There you go. I, I mean, you'd be surprised. It's something that it it works out like slacklining works out all of the core balance stabilizing muscles from your ankles, your knees, your hips, 
the lower core, even in your shoulders, you're using a lot of muscles that you um, that are the key muscles to help um, stabilize and balance you from walking upstairs, walking downhill, riding a bike, standing on a paddleboard, you name it. Um, it's a cross trainer. Uh, and that's what it was originally designed to be was a cross trainer. And now it's become this competitive extreme sport um, as more people have kind of pushed themselves harder and harder in it. Interesting. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and all the great advice. If any of the listeners are looking for more information, they can check out gibbonslacklines.com. Uh, that'll also be on our website, mtnmeister.com, with uh, some videos of John and some other awesome uh, resources, and maybe we'll even throw a Slack line on there. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you, uh, Ben and Russell. I had a great time, and, uh, you know, we'll have another chat sometime. Sounds good. <laughs> to the listeners out there, if you like what Russell and I are doing with this podcast, there's a really easy way to contribute and help out with what we're doing. One of the things that we're really focusing on right now is the new and noteworthy section. And what that is, is it's a section that you would get into for your podcast in the first eight weeks from your launch. And it's all based off of downloads and reviews. Yeah, exactly. And actually, on average, subscribers grow by 300% when a podcast makes this new and noteworthy section. So it's really important. And in order to make this happen, we really need your help. There are two main drivers that will help our podcast qualify for this section. And those are five-star reviews on iTunes and downloads. This is a huge goal for us. And there's really only two things that you need to do. For one, subscribe to the podcast. You'll get episodes five days a week. And leave us a review. We hope that it's five stars. It better be five stars. And thanks. Thanks.